Is it really true that twists are detoxifying? Have you looked into this? Have you researched this? Is it really true that if you just try enough and if you just know the right technique that anybody can do a handstand, maybe they buy the right program, the handstand program, and then after enough practice, 30 days or less, they can get their handstand down. Have you heard these kind of things in yoga contexts, maybe in a yoga class or yoga advertisements? These things are ways we can practice or not practice satya, the second yama of the yamas of the eight limbs of yoga, continuing this series that we started two weeks ago on the eight limbs of yoga. My name is Jeremy Devins, and this is the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast. And today's episode is all about applying and practicing satya, truthfulness in your practice and teaching. So we'll talk about what is your truth. How do you distinguish objective versus subjective truth? I'll share an unexpected way that I realized I was being dishonest with myself that I see a lot of people do in their own sort of mindset. This is probably one of the best lessons in this episode I'm really excited to share. I'll share a simple way you can apply satya, truthfulness, in every pose, in every class. So you might think, you know, I'm not lying. Why would, you know, why is this relevant to me? This isn't that big of a deal. Uh, But applying satya, there's a really fun way that you can do that in every pose in a class. And then finally, we'll talk about the most common ways that yoga teachers don't apply satya and actually are not truthful with their students and harmful with their students applying, again, ahimsa we talked about before. These yamas kind of go in order, and there's sort of theories that they go in order where you start with ahimsa, non-harming, then it's a little easier to not lie And then next week, a little easier to not steal, which again is one of these things. It's like, I don't steal from people. Why is this relevant to yoga practice? But we'll get into some very kind of unexpected, uncommon ways of looking at these these eight limbs of yoga. Right now, we're in the five yamas, the sort of things that we don't do, the ethical uh, recommendations of yoga. Before we get into that, today's episode is brought to you by the Quiet Mind Yoga Membership, which is now open and has full-length weekly classes, mini workshops, and one-to-one feedback. You can send in videos or comments on our private Facebook group to get support in your practice. We talk about specific skills like nervous system regulation, expanding lung capacity, and breaking down poses so you know step-by-step how they work. And over the next few weeks, I'm actually going to be adding uh, practices to embody the eight limbs of yoga as we learn and work through this series here on this podcast. Quietmind.yoga slash membership is where you can learn all about that. All right, so getting into this, what is your truth? And this is something that's kind of hit the mainstream in the last few years of my truth, right? You've probably heard people say, well, that's my truth. You know, you have your truth. I have my truth. And this is an interesting topic to talk about. I encourage you to to have a discussion with somebody about this. And I'm actually going to have the discussion on the Quiet Mind community. This is the free Facebook group, uh, quietmind.yoga slash community. You can see that. Uh, join for free. I'm going to ask if you want to share there, what is your truth? How do you define what is truth? Because for an evangelical Christian, the truth is, you know, that Jesus was the son of God. And, you know, the whole story of the Bible is the truth capital T, that is what happened. You talk to an agnostic scientist and they'll say, 
something very different, right? You talk to a Hindu and they'll say something very different about the story of uh, Vishnu and Krishna. And, you know, there's very different stories if you talk to different people of what the absolute truth is. And I was talking to my partner recently and, you know, she's talking about um, somebody talking about the Vedas. And like, if you want to know the truth, you go back to the Vedas. And they wouldn't say that. A Christian wouldn't say that. A Muslim wouldn't say that, right? So how can you say it's really the truth? And my sort of initial response was, well, there's objective things that are true. Like if you uh, if you hold your uh, pencil in the air and then you let it go, it's going to fall down. That is a fact. Like that's gravity. That's what happens on earth. That's the truth. Uh, if you hold a pencil, it's not going to fall up. That's not the truth, right? So so I got into this mindset of, well, there's objective things, and that is really the truth. That is satya. When we talk about what is objective, that we can all agree on, that is what happens. And what is subjective is not as much satya. That's more my beliefs, my experience, my perspective. And there is a truth to that. But my sort of argument is like, maybe we should have a different word, right? There's sort of my perspective and beliefs. And then there's the truth, which is a, a objective thing. And that's sort of my take on it is like, what is objective? So from a yoga perspective, knowing the Yoga Sutra 1.2 is yoga's chitta vritti narodaha. And in my yoga teacher training right now in our class, we were just discussing this the other day. We just finished our first phase of the training, uh, four weeks of training so far. And the big takeaway for many people was just really getting yoga's chitta vritti narodaha. Yoga is the quieting of the mind, the stilling of the fluctuations of the mind. This is why I named everything I do quiet mind yoga. But that's really what yoga is. It's that the one, Sutra 1.2, yoga is the quieting of the mind so that we can rest in our true self, right? So there it is right away as we go to the true self, the Atman, the witnessing awareness. The Atman is objective and our fluctuations of the mind is subjective. Now there's going to be days where we have highs and lows, happy, sad, up and down. Those those fluctuations are the vrittis in the chitta, right? So your chitta is all vritti, as my teacher Keva would say. <clears throat> Some days it's just real vritti up in my chitta, right? So, <laughs> so the mind can be one day it's like this is terrible, like this quarantine sucks. I feel so worn down and just confused and overwhelmed and uncertain and afraid and angry. And then the next day, it's like, yeah, this is an opportunity. This I can see the possibility in this. I can see how we're helping other people stay healthy. I can see how I can have more free time and creativity and sleep in. Uh, so those are the vrittis. It's up and down, right? It's not the absolute truth that it sucks. It's not the absolute truth that it's an opportunity. Uh, for everyone else, it's a different experience. So everyone else is having their subjective truth. But the objective truth is the awareness of, Right now, when I'm recording this, the quarantine is happening in 2020. Uh, that's objective. There's 3 billion plus people under quarantine. Uh, that is objective. That is the truth. Now, so this sort of perspective of what is objective, that's the Atman, the part of us that just sees, like, okay, this is what's happening. This is what the sort of blank slate is. 
And now the subjective truth comes in of how I'm going to interpret that. And more and more in yoga, the idea is to disidentify with the subjective truth. Disidentify with the subjective truth, the ups and downs of the mind, the this is a great thing, this sucks. Everything is posi positive, positive and anything is possible. Uh, nothing is possible, like, you know, this, I, I can't do anything. And this shows up in yoga and, you know, I work with different students who have different levels of experience and ability and sort of mindset of just some people, sometimes they feel like it's, you know, I can't do this pose. This isn't going to work. Why am I doing this? Maybe yoga isn't for me. Uh, I had these same things before I started. I, I remember walking by the yoga class and just see a group of women. There's no guys in there. It's, it's curious. I was curious to try the class. This was like 2008 going into my gym and I'd see the yoga class, like I heard about yoga and meditation and I thought of it more as meditation, but this was like a gym setting. And uh, my subjective truth was like, I don't know if that's for me, maybe that's just for women. I think stretching is just a waste of time was actually what I said. I wrote a blog about this years ago. I just thought stretching would just be a waste of time. Like I do stretch, I'm fine. I'm here to work out. Uh, so, you know, of course, I, uh, my subjective truth has evolved over time. And now I think of yoga quite differently. Um, but that objective part of me had to be willing to say, you know, maybe it is just for women. Maybe it is a waste of time, but I'm going to check it out and just see what it's like. Uh, so that objective part, the Atman, the true self is neutral. It's not reactive. It's not sudden. It's not even really slow. It's neutral. It's, uh, it's not positive. It's not negative. It's neutral. So the more we can get in touch with that, that's the real, if you read through the Yoga Sutra, that's the goal. It's, can we return to that true self? And this is the objective truth, objective truth, the true self, the Atman, the witnessing awareness, the drop of the ocean that is Brahman. So if you're familiar with the, um, Vedanta philosophy, uh, the Samkhya philosophy, the origins of what is yoga philosophy, that there's Brahman and Atman. Brahman is like the ocean. Atman is like a drop of the ocean. And that is who we are. So every time we say Namaste, we're saying, hey, I'm an Atman. I'm a drop of this ocean. You're a drop of the ocean. And uh, remember what it's like to be the ocean. So, hey, I see you. You know, we're in this together. We're just drops of the ocean. You look different than me, I look different than you. But on the inside, underneath all these layers of you know, personality and beliefs and thoughts, uh, we're just drops of the ocean and we're the same. And you can say that looking at a dog or a cat or a bird or a person of any race, gender, size, background, age, we're all just drops of the ocean and that is neutral. Neutral like water, just clear. So. That is getting back to the true self, the Atman. And that's the first thing to think about when applying Satya. Now, the unexpected way that I realized I was being dishonest with myself was being too critical. And this is something I see a lot. And again, this example of somebody who's new to yoga, maybe not as flexible as they've seen in the magazines. And we'll get to that part of it as well. So they come in and they can't do the fancy poses and they're limited in their bodies. And they think they're being honest with themselves to say like, you know, I, I just can't do it. Uh, I need more practice. I need to try harder. 
and there is a truth to that. That is a subjective truth, really. And you can really uh, gain a lot from that path of, of seeing your limitations and challenges and saying, I want to improve these things. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to get help. That's all great. Uh, but there is a point where it becomes almost like self-loathing and like self-criticism. It's too harsh. It's just not true. It's just not the truth of the situation. And if you, as uh, one of the teachers I really like, sort of uh, adjacent to yoga is Abraham Hicks, or uh, uh, maybe you've heard of her, Esther Hicks. Uh, you look up on YouTube. There's a lot of great videos. Uh, I love their stuff. It's it's very resonant with this sort of yoga philosophy. Uh, but th they essentially say anytime you're feeling dissonance or off or negative emotion, like this strong reaction, you're not seeing yourself as the source sees you. So you're not really connected to the objective truth of the situation in that, in that state. And that's okay. Like we all have those times. We have those times where we judge others. We judge ourselves. We feel reactive. We feel hurt. We say mean things. We think mean things about ourselves. We're harsh on ourselves. And this is what I experienced years ago. I was, I was doing this where I was feeling really self-critical and like not enough. And I was trying everything and frustrated and, and really struggling. And uh, a coach I worked with, I've done a lot of coach training as well, life coach training, had a coach for many years and, uh, you know, still reach out to coaches occasionally. And, but I worked very closely with several for a few years. And the, the realization was just that that wasn't true. Like, yes, you know, I could improve and grow, but the way I was treating myself was very harsh and very uh, unrealistic. And I thought, you know, I'm just being, you know, true with myself, being real with myself. And another good example of this is if you've seen the Bikram documentary, which is a whole other can of worms to get into. Uh, but one of the things you, you see in that documentary is he would uh, call his students names or call them fat or call them out on, on things. And uh, one student in particular... He said, you know, if, if I didn't have that harsh criticism, I wouldn't have changed and I wouldn't have lost like 50 pounds or whatever he lost. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but uh, some people do respond to like negative reinforcement and they want that harsh criticism. But ultimately, if you keep following down that path, of course, it's going to lead to uh, negative results. Of It's just too harsh. It's not realistic. And ultimately, most students in most cases did not respond well to that. And that is uh, quite an intense environment to be considered yoga, uh, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but that was an example of where it can be positive, where having that harsh criticism of yourself can get results, but ultimately it's more harm than good, I think, and from my experience and from what I've seen. And it's an interesting sort of insidious way where we can feel like we're being honest with ourselves, but really we're just beating ourselves up. So what I would encourage to practice satya here is to notice if you are criticizing yourself or comparing yourself or judging yourself and notice, you know, does this feel harmful? Does this feel like ahimsa where I'm not harming myself or does this feel like I'm just kind of beating myself up? And what is really true here? What's objectively true? I'm showing up to practice. I'm trying new things. I'm taking a risk. I'm, I've am i been sedentary for years and now suddenly I'm, I'm attempting to change those habits and it will likely take time. 
and I'm doing my best and I'm showing up and I have support, right? So what are the objective things that you can look from outside yourself and say, this is what's happening? And then subjectively, you know, you might develop uh, you know, more positive feelings about it, but you might still have those negative thoughts and, and feelings at times, and that's okay. Uh, the subjective part by nature is going to fluctuate. That is exactly what the Yoga Sutra teaches, that we can't stop that. And in Buddhism, they would say the nature of the mind is essentially to be like a garden that develops weeds. The nature of the mind is not to be peaceful and serene and have no feelings ever. Uh, that uh, is sort of possible. Uh, it's a choice. Uh, but ultimately, uh, what really naturally happens, what is most natural is just like a garden. You leave a garden unattended, it's going to be overrun with weeds in no time. You leave your mind unattended, it's going to be overrun with negative thoughts in no time. As uh, positive psychologists and neuroscientists would say, the, the brain is like uh, Velcro for negative ideas and Teflon for positive ideas. So we've got to really uh, work to, like, every time we put a positive idea into our mind, uh, it's going to basically just kind of slide around and not stick to us. Uh, but the negative thoughts will stick to us like Velcro, uh, but we can pull them apart like Velcro. But ultimately, that's all the subjective truth. That's all the, the vrittis, the ups and downs. The objective part of us is what we're attempting to get back to through yoga. And it's possible for everybody. It doesn't matter if you never do a handstand or crow pose or any fancy pose. If you can just sit and be aware and notice, oh, that was a negative thought. Oh, that was a positive thought. Oh, I'm thinking about thinking. The only way you can have those thoughts is if you're in the subjective awareness, the satya, the true self. So a simple way that you can apply this in each pose, beyond what I've already shared, that's more of the sort of meditative mindset stuff, but in a, each posture, you can check in with how am I feeling today? Do I want more or less here? And this is something I'll teach a lot in my classes and I teach in my teacher training of pose progressions. So we always start with the simplest pose and then add on to it, but then you can decrease as well. So imagine side plank. So side plank pose, your right arm is down. So like in side plank, I would say here, you can lower your right knee down and stay there. So side plank with the right knee down, a little less there. Or you could stack your feet. That's sort of the standard side plank, Vashisasana. If you want more, you could lift your left leg here. So now you're working quite a bit harder, uh, but those are three variations of the same pose. One was simpler and then more complex and then more complex. And some days you might feel like you want more. Some days you might feel like you want less in your physical practice. So that's where you, you practice the satya, checking in with yourself, not looking around and seeing, you know, what is everyone else doing? Oh, everyone else is lifting their leg. I should be able to lift my leg too. Why can't I lift? My, you know, it's just, you go down that path pretty fast uh, if you're not mindful of it, but you can catch it as well pretty fast. Just noticing like, you know, what, what am I thinking here? Why am I comparing myself? Uh, maybe that person 
uh, used to be an athlete and they've, they've done gymnastics their whole life and, uh, you know, they kicked their ass when they were a kid and now this is just easy by comparison. Uh, and I've been sedentary in an office my whole life and this is my second class. So, so of course I'm not going to compare to a gymnast, right? So being honest and practicing satya with yourself and your body and maybe it's like last week i had a really strong practice i did all this advanced stuff but today i'm just not quite feeling it a way that i practice this for myself is if like especially this shows up in weights uh, less so in yoga but especially with weights like uh, say i'll go to lift something heavy and then i feel a little twinge in my knee so my knee is saying uh, i need to rest like this isn't going to work for me and I could push through it. I could say, okay, why well, I, I can subjectively uh, feel that pain and uh, just ignore it. But objectively, I'm like, okay, so there's a knee pain happening. And uh, my ultimate goal is not to perform at a high level today. It's to perform at a, a, a high sustainable level for the, my whole life, really. So if I miss a little bit of working out today and I save my knee, I think that's a, a fair trade. So the satya for me is like, if I feel a little twinge in my knee or my shoulder, I just stop and I just, okay, I did my best and my body said no. So I'm gonna move on and then I'll come back tomorrow and see how I'm feeling tomorrow. So that's a pretty, that's a more extreme example in a way, because in yoga practice, there's usually not something that big where it could actually stop me in my tracks or you necessarily, because you can just modify, do a different variation of a pose. Uh, but like with lifting weights, like my knees out, there's no way I'm doing leg work and lifting heavy weights with my legs, right? So I stop. And that's being honest with myself and being truthful with where my body's at. And in yoga, the way this often shows up is uh, pushing into poses further than you're comfortable with. And having an objective to like match some picture you've seen or what somebody next to you can do or some ideal of a pose or what a teacher says. And as a teacher, you gotta be real mindful of this, of not saying there's any one way to do a pose. And uh, a, a common sort of mistake that a teacher would make is demonstrating the most advanced version of a pose as if that's the better version or the ideal version. In most cases, and this was something I learned in one of my first trainings uh, with one of my teachers, Robin, uh, she, she would say, you know, I always demonstrate the simplest version of the pose because everybody's gonna look and see what I'm doing and especially beginners, they're gonna just try to do the hardest thing. Cause like if they see me doing the hardest thing and everyone else around them doing the hardest version, they're going to want to do that too. Like that's okay. You know, it's sort of the American mentality of more is more. And, uh, if, you know, if it's possible, then I'll find a way. And, you know, especially for beginners, like they just don't know yet exactly the parameters of where their body's at and more experienced students, they can push themselves. They you know, they got this really, you know, developed mind body connection, but for a beginner student, that's still something that's developing as a teacher. You've got to be really cautious and cognizant of that. So you give options and, uh, and I, I sometimes I'll demonstrate the beginner, uh, intermediate then advanced. And then I'll just go back to the beginner one and stay there. Uh, so that they see like, you know, he's the teacher, he's, he could do the advanced one, but he's staying with the beginner one. And, you know, I feel better in the beginner one. I'm going to go with that. So you're kind of modeling, uh, this permission to do less 
because sometimes you want to do more, sometimes you want to do less. And that's being truthful with your body and your practice day to day. And some days you want to sleep in, some days you want to get up early, right? So it's satya moment to moment, pose to pose. And uh, a good example of this past Sunday at my Sunday class, uh, I do every Sunday at 9.30 a.m., uh, quietmind.yoga slash zoom. You can join in on that Sunday, it's 9.30 a.m. Uh, towards the end of the class, I gave the option uh, you could stay here in meditation for the last few minutes, or you could move into Shavasana or a resting pose. And uh, Sue, if you're listening, Sue, Sue Ellen, uh, she said, you know, I really appreciated at the end that you uh, gave us the option to stay in meditation because I wanted to meditate longer, and uh, that's exactly what I needed today. So that I love that kind of feedback. Like that's what I love in my practice. Like I don't. I don't necessarily want to be told everything to do in a yoga class because I want to listen to my body. And that's the real skill we're developing is listening to what is true for us, not what a teacher tells us should be true. So I could have said, now we all come to Shavasana and uh, stay there, you know, and not give options. Um, but I, I've always stuck with an invitational approach to teaching. And that's a way you can invite your students to find their truth, their subjective truth in that moment and ultimately their objective truth of choosing of listening to themselves of like where am i at where are my highs and lows today do i feel you know i want to sit and meditate do i want to sit and uh, do this mudra do i want to come down my back so letting them know they have options and they can find what is true for them so another uncommon or another common way that teachers don't apply satya so the way that they don't apply satya is what I mentioned before is sort of unrealistic standards and image and body image. So uh, if you're a teacher, you know, what does your Instagram feed look like? Is it a bunch of like super advanced postures that nobody, like most students can't do? Are you trying to impress students with your uh, scorpion pose? You know, uh, is that stuff really ultimately helpful for the majority of students? It looks good and it's uh, very marketable and it's great for advertisements and flyers and marketing and it sells the lifestyle of uh, advanced yogi you know super flexible and peaceful in all situations you know it's and there's nothing wrong with it and I, I sound a little derisive here and I, I, I maybe there's some unconscious shadow coming out as I'm talking uh, but but I think it's great I think I, I love the post it's beautiful right we all can agree it's just like it's amazing to see beautiful advanced postures people who can get into any shape. It's super impressive. It's amazing. And uh, I encourage you to do more of it. And if, if you if that lights you up, do it. And it's just important to be mindful of, is that the image we're selling though, of like that is how yoga is done. And this is what yoga is. And if you can't do this, you're not doing yoga. Uh, we want to be cautious of that and aware that, you know, the majority of students are not going to ever do those postures. They, maybe they have had surgeries, they started late. Maybe they just don't want to right? Like you could push yourself to do a lot of things, uh, and you can do it. Uh, but, but why, you know, why do you want to have your legs behind your head? You know, uh, if, if that's something that you really want to do and it feels, you know, there's a reason for it, it's intentional. It's, it feels truthful to what is, feels right for you, then great and go for it. Uh, but know that a lot of students coming to you might have this image in their head of like, that's what yoga is. And that's what I need to do. And, 
And I encourage you as a teacher to be mindful of like, what image are you selling of what yoga is? And is that true to the Yoga Sutra? You know, there's no mention of scorpion pose or anything in any postures besides stira sukha asana. As I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, it's just finding balance of effort and ease in the position you're in. And you can do that in any pose, in sitting down. Most of the old postures were just sitting meditation. So, you know, can you make room for that as well? Can you include that that is the yoga? That if a student can do that, they can do yoga. And and let them know, you know, and let them know that that is, that is yoga. If they can't do any of the advanced postures. The other way that shows up is fake science. And I've done this in the past. I've done a, you know, a workshop on uh, detoxifying twists. But ultimately, I've learned over the years that it's, it's um, our liver does just fine without twists, right? The twisting doesn't do a whole lot more to detoxify beyond what our bodies naturally do just fine. And the kidneys and liver and all the organs do our detoxification just fine. There's ways we can aid with that, um, but... There, there is a lot of pseudoscience. I don't see it as much anymore, but especially, you know, as I was beginning like 10, 12 years ago uh, at this point, uh, learning yoga, that I would hear a lot of these phrases. I don't hear them as much anymore, but they're still out there. And you just want to be mindful of like, you know, if I'm saying something in a class or hearing something from a teacher, can I find the the scientific validation of that? Can I have the experiential validation of that? Um and a lot of things in yoga are not scientifically validated. A lot of sort of the beliefs and theories and, and uh, benefits are more anecdotal. And I think that's okay. And I think there's a lot of validity in that. And uh, ultimately, the way that it comes out for me is just sharing my own experience. And I might say, you know, this has been really beneficial for me in this way. And that holds more weight than uh, saying something like twists or detoxifying or... You know, just something general, sort of pseudoscience. Just be mindful of that. And if you hear it and you're skeptical, great. Go do some research, check it out, see what the science says. Uh, but there really isn't a whole lot of objective, scientifically proven stuff as far as benefits of yoga. Uh, but there are some definitely good ones, like it's many, many cases shown to improve mood and and uh, general health and wellness and even weight loss in some studies. Um, reduced back pain studies, right? So there are some great studies out there. Um, but ultimately, if you listen to my classes and my podcast, Quiet Mind Yoga, or go to my video classes at quietmind.yoga slash membership, uh, you'll see that most of the time I'm just teaching neutral actions. I'm saying inhale cow pose, exhale cat pose. I'm just teaching the posture, and this is what I have found feels authentic and true for me, is to just teach the yoga and uh, not add too much color or narrative or uh, instruction of how to feel or what results to get, but to just leave it more open-ended of like, you know, just do it and you'll feel it and you'll get the benefits uh, and you'll have the subjective experience. And, and that's something, you know, if you haven't done this as a teacher, you could play with of just uh, just teach a class that's really just telling them movements and not much story, not much reason, uh, not much uh, extra explanation for anything of just telling the movements and see how students respond. Do they like it? Do they feel great afterwards? 
uh, ask for feedback, see what they say. And I found that to be really effective. And often you'll hear, I do have a theme and I, and I might have like a, a theme that we're working with, like finding, uh, uh, in the most recent class, we were practicing Pratyahara sense withdrawal, which we'll cover in this future, in this series in a future episode. Um, but this past Sunday's class, we were talking about Pratyahara and finding uh, awareness of the mind-muscle connection in the body. So that's something, su- that's something uh, subjective, but it's, it's neutral. It's like, I can feel electrical impulse in my hand. I can feel electrical impulse in my quadriceps when I contract them. Uh, those things are much more neutral, and uh, I don't need a big scientific explanation for it. I don't need to give a big reason of why it's beneficial, uh, of just other than can we bring awareness to the whole body here? So throughout the practice, the whole point of the theme was to go through several different postures to activate and uh, contract all the major muscles of the body, but also to lengthen all the major muscles of the body. So you feel that mind-muscle connection in every area of the body. So that's one example. It's just bringing awareness to what you experience in the moment. Rather than I could have given a whole bunch of explanation and uh, talked about the nadis and the 72,000 energy channels and how we're going to open up every single energy channel in the body, it's like... Maybe that, you know, in in my own subjective sort of experience, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, and I, I sort of believe in that, my belief. Uh, but I can't prove that. And if I start talking about that, it's like, you know, where are these 72,000 energy channels? Show me. Um, I can't really prove it. So I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but I know in my own experience, like, you know, I, yeah, I, it feels like, like there's some channels open and I might say, you know, in the old yoga text, they would say this, um, you know, maybe you can feel that, maybe not. So sort of saying, you know, here's the sort of um, possibility. Here's a belief uh, theory. And uh, is that true for you? And always bringing it back to the student. Of, is this true for you? Does this stick? Does it work? And if not, discard it. And if it works, keep it. All right. So that's my sort of... Uh, my my TED talk on uh, Satya. Hope you enjoyed this and found it helpful. Satya, truthfulness, applying truthfulness in your practice and teaching. Next week, we're talking all about the next yama, which is asteya, non-stealing. How do you steal in a yoga context, in your practice, in your teaching? How might you steal? How might you not steal? Right? I'd be curious to hear what you think. And if you want to share what you think about this episode, go over to quietmind.yoga slash community and join the Facebook group. It's free. I share about the new podcast, the new offerings. Actually, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, I will be hosting a Facebook Live. I do one in the new moon every month in that group. So I'll be doing a Q&A. If you have any questions you want to talk about, your yoga practice, Ayurveda, Vedic astrology, teacher training, all the things I teach and talk about, that's tomorrow on the Quiet Mind community. This is a free Facebook group and a free Facebook Live tomorrow you can join in on. All right, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week. I'm excited to share more with you next week on the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast.